Our sermon this evening is based on the second part of what we began to consider last week on this question uh, pertaining to the conception and birth of Jesus. This is question 36 in the Catechism. And the question asks, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? It would help if I just read question 35 uh, to back up. What The question 35 last week was, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And you'll remember we discussed that uh, in the sermon last week. And now then the... the uh, Catechism authors are asking more the application question now. How does this benefit you? What benefit is that in your life? Yes, you believe this truth, but now how does that benefit you? And the answer is given, He is our mediator, and in God's sight, He covers with His innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Now, my friends, when we come to study theology, when we come to study the Bible, people approach this in different ways. The goal when we study theology, right, is to take all the different teachings of Scripture, right, and to weave them together into a consistent whole, right, to see how these doctrines fit together. You can't have uh, doctrines contradicting each other, right? Our mind naturally rebels against that idea, right? Things need to fit together. They need to be logically consistent. And that's kind of the, the topical or the, uh, you'll often see the word systematic theology, Right? You see the word system there. It's system theology. In other words, the author is, is really time trying to take everything that the Bible teaches on all the different topics of Scripture, and he's trying to weave that into a consistent whole, right? to, to write a system of theology where everything fits together. Now, there's also a, a more historical way of studying the Bible. It's often called biblical theology, which uh, isn't a very good term because... It's no less biblical than systematic theology. It's just a different method. When people are doing this, they're studying theology more from a historical. They're asking questions like, you know, what did Abraham understand? What did he believe? How did that grow when it came to David or to the prophets? And then, of course, with the coming of Christ. This method of theology is kind of like the, the growth of a tree. It starts as an acorn and it grows, right? What did the authors of Scripture know? when they taught it. That's different than the, the systematic theologian, right? He's, he's more topical. He's taking everything that the Bible teaches on a given subject and, and putting it all together. Well, the catechism as we have it here is very much a topical approach, right? And the, and the authors of our catechism are concerned to fit things together properly. And that's why in the outline here this evening, I draw your attention to question seven. Question seven. Because here, our instructor has explained to us that we have a corrupt nature. And that this corrupt nature, uh, where does it come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Now, I want you to hear those words, conceived and born. We are conceived and born in sin. And again, that's, that's very similar to what we just saw from Psalm 51, 
where David looks back and as, as long as he's been alive, he says, I see a track record of sin and guilt. And in the same way, the catechism is teaching us that we are born with a sinful nature within us. Now, the terms that we use in theology, the terms that the students in the Sunday school have learned are original and actual sin. Original and actual sin. Now, when you hear that term original, you hear the term origin. You hear that? Original sin. And you hear the word origin. In other words, this is our origin sin. It's the sin that comes from our origin. That we are born from Adam, right? And because Adam sinned and we are in Adam by way of covenant, he is our representative. That when Adam sinned, we sinned. And that Adam's guilt is imputed to us and we are and we are punished uh, for that sin with this sin nature that we inherit from our parents, which ultimately came from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. That is the, the truth that our catechism has begun with. And now you can see that the catechism question that we have before us this evening then, so that's the bad news, right? In the outline there, that's the bad news. We are conceived and born in sin. But the catechism goes further, my friends, and brings us to this good news, right? And this time, in the question that we have before us, we read, how does the holy conception and birth, now there you see that again, right? Conception and birth. In question seven, we were conceived and born sin. But now we have here that Christ was conceived and born Without sin, right? He is our mediator and in God's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. So Christ was perfectly innocent and holy in his conception and in his birth. We were born in sin and conceived in sin. But Christ was conceived and born in innocence and holiness. And therefore, Christ's innocence works now to our benefit. And that's what the instructor is going to teach us. That is the good news that he gives gives us here tonight. Now, you'll notice that in, in our question that we're looking at this evening, it says, he is our mediator. Now, that too, my friends, takes us back to the catechism, because in question 15, the catechism has said, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And the answer given was, one, is a, one who is a true and righteous man. Now, my friends, the Catechism has taught us that a man who is himself under the bondage of sin or who himself has sin on his record cannot be a mediator for sinners. He has to be a true and righteous man. And where will we find such a one? Well, again, the good news of our Catechism this evening, that Christ was born in innocence and perfect holiness. And therefore... He is qualified. He has the credentials to be our mediator before God. Now, there you see, my friends, something of of the system, right? Of how Christian theology works, right? These things fit together, right? Just as we were conceived and born in sin. Christ was born and conceived conceived and born without sin. And because of that, he can be our mediator because he is a true, righteous man. The good news, the bad news first, and then also the good news. Well, then let's turn to Scripture. 
And let's see this teaching in the Word of God. And my friends, we come here to Romans 8. And you know that the whole book of Romans is, is really like this. It is, a, uh, it is so uh, dense in its, uh, and uh, um, heavy with theology. Every phrase, every word, every line of it is just full of meaning. And uh, of all the books in the Bible, it, it, it taxes your patience uh, I mean, it's a happy task, isn't it? But still, it's hard work sometimes to get through uh, just one or two verses. And you're going to see that also this evening. But still, uh, it's well worth it. The work that we put into this is well worth it and brings us truths that we rejoice in. And truths, of course, that undergird the teaching of what our catechism has been teaching us this evening. So I look with you then at Romans 8 and verse 1. Romans 8 and verse 1 where right away, dear friends, we are brought into God's courtroom. That's immediately what should enter your mind. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, and that means there is no guilty verdict. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is is God's courtroom. And now there's no condemnation, no guilty verdict for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, my friends, here we have the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. And the verse says that we have been set free from the one and given over to the other. And how did that happen? The law of sin and death, that's a bondage, isn't it? That's living under a tyranny. That's living under a cruel oppression. But we've been set free from that. How? In Christ Jesus. That when a person is joined to Jesus Christ by faith, a liberation takes place. He's set free from the law of sin and death, and he's given over to the law of the Spirit of life. Being united to Christ, he receives the Holy Spirit, and that gives life. Then Paul continues, and this is the text for this evening, verse 3, for what the law could not do, and let's just skip what the rest of that there, for what the law could not do, skip over to God did. Again, try to step back and see the big picture here. The law was not able to do something. We'll talk about that. But the law was unable to do something but God did it. The law failed. God succeeded. Now, what, in in the third heading here under my outline, what was it that the law could not do? What was it that the law could not do? Well, that's what we had in verse 2. The law could not set us free from the law of of sin and of death. Now here already, my friends, you come to one of the real difficulties in interpreting these scriptures And that is that Paul uses the word law in different ways, doesn't he? It's quite a flexible word in Paul's mind. In one sense, Paul uses it to refer to, and this is the sense I think that we understand it, the law is everything that we're supposed to be doing. right? It tells us what what we should be doing and what we should not be doing. Then, Paul also uses the word law as, as kind of a controlling kind of a controlling force in our life. All right? 
something that kind of kind of controls us and holds us down like a a force in us. So when he says, for what the law could not do, now there he means the law as a written record of what God expects us to be doing. All the all the thou shalt and all the thou shalt nots. The Ten Commandments, let's, let's keep it simple. The Ten Commandments, all the list of things we should be doing. But the law of the Spirit of life is referring now to the law as a kind of force in our life. Something that controls us. The law of the Spirit of life, so we can be controlled by the by the Spirit which gives life, which comes to us when we are united to Christ, in Christ Jesus. Or we have the law or the controlling force of sin, which leads to death. So you have those two masters there. The Spirit and the and sin. And in verse 3, we are told now that the law was not able to liberate us from the law of sin and death. It was not able to do it. But God was able to do it. But before we get to what God does, let's ask ourselves this question. Why couldn't the law liberate us from sin? Paul says, for what the law could not do, and here's the part we skipped, but let's, let's look at it now. Weak as it was through the flesh. Weak as it was through the flesh. Well, that means, my friends, that, when, uh, that there is something within the heart of man that prevents him from throwing off sin and living a life to God's glory. And Paul often uses the word flesh in that way. He uses the word flesh to refer to the sin nature that is, that is deep within us. There is this love for sin, right? Again, same thing as what David was pointing out in Psalm 51, that there is something deep within us that is, that is in love with sin, something that inclines us, it kind of bends us towards sin, that when we see something sinful, we're drawn to it, like a fly is drawn to a light. Weak through the flesh. You see, Paul says, you can put the Ten Commandments in front of a person. Here they are. Do them. But if he's under the control of flesh, if he's in the flesh, if he's under the control of sin, it won't. It's weak. He, he, can't, he can't will himself to keep the commands of God. He can try. He can give it his best effort. But he always fails. He always fails. So the law could not set us free from sin. Why? Because there's something within us. And I think, my friends, I, I can appeal to your own experience as Christians, right? That when, when temptation comes to us, as it, as it comes to all of us, there's something within us, isn't there, that, that answers to it, that listens to it, that, that reaches out for it, in a sense, isn't there? That's one of the most difficult things, isn't it, of being a Christian? That, that temptations don't just come to us, and that's all. But that there's like an enemy within us that, that reaches out for it. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's not simply enough to put the law in front of somebody. I mean, theoretically, you could say that could work, right? If I put the law in front of somebody and somebody kept that law perfectly, they've been set free from sin, right? It worked. But no, there's this flesh, says Paul. Weak as it was <coughs> through the flesh. So the law could not do it. <clears throat> it could not liberate us from sin. Why? 
because there's this flesh, this, this sin nature deep within us. But God did succeed. God did succeed. And how did God succeed? He says in verse 3, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And notice that the words, as an offering, there is in italics. It could just be, and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Again, my friends, these, these words are so heavy. I, I, that's why I, on the outline I, I took them apart and I want to look at them phrase by phrase. Sending his own son, right? That's the second person of the Trinity, that's Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Boy, I'm telling you, my friends, in my, in my study in the past week, if you could see the books that were written on that one phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, pages upon pages written to try to understand what Paul just wrote down. At any rate, in the likeness of sinful flesh. If we say that God sent his son in flesh, I think that's quite clear to us, right? He became a human person. But if, we, if it read sending his own son in sinful flesh, we would draw back a bit. We would, no, that can't be. But Jesus, right, the Bible tells us in other, many other places that Jesus uh, well, in one place it says, right, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, right? Jesus did not have sin. And so the apostle says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yes, he was flesh. And yes, his flesh was subject to all the temptations that we experience. But it was not the same. How was it not the same? Well, in the sense that there was nothing in Jesus that answered. That's what we were just saying, right? There was nothing in Jesus. There was no sin nature within him. That inner corruption that David was repenting of in Psalm 51. There was nothing within day in, within Christ that reached out to take hold of that temptation, that desired it, that, that, that looked for it. There was nothing within him that answered back to that temptation. He had all the temptations we had. We know that. He was, he was still a human, but it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. And David, quali- or not David, Paul qualifies that by saying likeness, right? Because Jesus was completely without sin. All the temptations that we face, my friends, but never the least inclination to take that forbidden fruit, to choose that sin. And then Paul writes, and as an offering for sin, or again, uh, in, in the Greek, it's actually just, and for sin. And for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Well, he condemned sin. Jesus came to this world in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was human, and he was born into this world, my friends. And you might say that, that sin stepped forward to take hold of him. Jesus was born as a human person. Now, my friends, when you were born, sin stepped forward and took hold of you and, and won you. It conquered you. And that's why as soon as you came to the use of your own reason, you showed yourself to be a sinner. We were conceived and born in sin. 
But my friends, it was very different when Jesus was born. When Jesus, when God sent Jesus into this world, he was conceived, he was born, and you might say that sin stepped forward to take hold of him, just as he did all human persons. But he was rejected. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus never for a moment gave in to the least inclination to fall into a sin. Never. And so you might say sin lost its prize. My friends, there's something else very important to note here. And and that's why I, I pulled that last phrase out. He condemned sin in the flesh. And that's a critical part of this text. In the flesh. You see, Jesus did not come to this world in the, in the nature of an angel. He did not come to this world in the nature of some animal. He didn't have animal flesh. He, he didn't come in the nature of an angel or in any other kind of nature. He came where sin was. Where was sin? Where was sin in this world? It was in flesh, right? In sinful human flesh. It was in humans. Animals don't sin. Angels fell, right? But... Jesus came into the very arena, you might say, where sin was the champion. Sin was the undisputed champion in the realm of humanness. May I put it that way this evening? In flesh. He was the undisputed champion. And Jesus now came into that nature. He was born into flesh. And he never sinned. Never could anybody accuse him of the least sin. And therefore, he conquered sin. And, and in, in, the, in the text, our text, it says, he condemned sin in the flesh. May I put it differently? He damned sin to hell in the flesh. That's what it says. The, the condemnation there is not just the sentence of condemnation, but also the enactment of it, the execution of it. He damned Sin to hell. Now, my friends, our catechism, to go back to that, our catechism has said that with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin in which I was born and conceived. That may be somewhat difficult for us because we're trained from our, our youngest days, aren't we, to, to think that Jesus came and he died to take away our sin. Right? That his death was an atonement. You see, my friends, that's actually, it's not a mistake, because of course it's true. But the whole life and all the sufferings of Christ, my friends, were atonement for us. His conception, his birth, his life, And of course his death, and chiefly his death, right? But not to the neglect of these other things. And the birth of Christ, my friends, was also an atonement. Why? Again, my friends, because Jesus entered into humanness. He entered into the arena of human nature, as it were, and defeated the champion there. He put to rout sin. And in that sense, he was an atonement for our sins. He, in atonement, just means to remove sin, right? To remove guilt. And so Christ's birth was an atonement. His conception, his perfect innocence, was a conception. Uh, In conception was an atonement. His life was an atonement. 
And as he grows older, my friends, you can imagine Jesus as, as three, as four, as five. And every step of the way, my friends, at every age, every week of his life, temptations came in upon him. And every time, they were rebuffed. Now, we see this most clearly, of course, don't we, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Remember that Satan came to Jesus three times and tempted him. And here, my friends, we see really the truth of what our catechism says to us in this evening. He covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin. Because every time those temptations came to Jesus, he turned them away. And never once did he in the, in the least kind of reach forth to take hold of that temptation and that sin. Now, my friends, I think we sometimes think somewhat inaccurately about Jesus and his coming to this earth. We we, we can tend to have this kind of sense that Jesus was like like an angel. He kind of came to this earth and he didn't really struggle with any of the things we do, of course. You know, he was Jesus. He was perfect, right? And that's really not a biblical conception of who Jesus was. Think, my friends, just just think with me about this one verse in Hebrews that says he was tempted in all things like we were. And think, for my, for my, my friends, about the body that Jesus took to him. Now, it was not sinful flesh, right? But it was still flesh. It was still flesh. It still had the the, the, the desires and the appetites that lead us into sin. Jesus had to struggle with all those things. For instance, when the devil offered bread to Jesus in the wilderness, you don't think that the hunger pangs that Jesus felt, that Jesus had to struggle against those? And those hunger pangs that were crying out for food, that Jesus had to stifle those and push those down, just as we do? Now, there's a deep mystery here, isn't there? And I, and I, I know... I can't explain this entirely. I understand that. There's a mystery here. How? Because Jesus had no sin nature, right? He had no He had no nature that was pushing him to sin. And yet he did have human nature, my friends. He did have all the weakness that pertains to a human body. And therefore the apostle can say that he was tempted in all points, like as we are. Well, that's an amazing truth, my friends. And it's something to think about also in the time of Christmas when we think about Jesus coming into the flesh and when we think about this truth that the Catechism gives us that Jesus' innocence and perfect holiness removes from God's sight my sin. I move to my points of application at this point. I I realize that I've already kind of said a few things from my application. But let me just say, let me just move through these three points here. In the first place is a more theological consideration. My friends, this is why as as believers in the scriptures, we champion, we, we treasure the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. I know it's not something we talk about often in our circles, but the virgin birth, it's actually not talked about much in scripture either. But for all that, it is certainly there that Jesus was born... And by the way, here there's a, a correction. I put that in the outline there. It's really not technically the virgin birth, right? 
It's the virginal conception. Jesus was born, was conceived in the womb of Mary without, right, without a biological father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the scripture teaches us. And because of that, he never participated in the original sin that all of us participate in. And that's why Jesus could be tempted in so many different ways and yet never have anything that answered back to those temptations. The virginal conception. And that's why, my friends, we can preach this evening, as the Catechism has taught us, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and did what the law could not do, and that is, set us free from the law of sin and death. My second point of application is victory, and this is the point that I kind of already spoke about. But let me just repeat some of these, these truths, especially as, as we can read them in, in Hebrews chapter 5. And let me just read this to you. And again, this pertains to what I've already mentioned, that sometimes we have a, an inaccurate idea of who Jesus was and of what he had to struggle with when he was on this earth. In Hebrews 5 and verse 7, listen to these words. The author of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, that is, in the days of Jesus. And notice again the emphasis on flesh. In the days of his flesh, when he had a human body, like you and I do. He, that is Jesus, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Do you hear that, my friends? Was there ever a time in your life, I'm I'm sure there was, when you cried out to God with loud crying and tears? Is that right, my friends? Was there a time in your life like that? Do you remember that? With loud crying and tears, Jesus was there. Jesus did the same thing. Now, it's not me telling you that. That's the scriptures. You say, well, wasn't Jesus perfect? He he certainly didn't have to struggle with these things, did he? My friends, read what the Bible says. Read Read what our Savior went through in the days of his flesh. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And you can say, well, how does that fit with this with his being perfect? And I'm not, again, there's, some, there's, a, there's a deep mystery there, my friends. I can't pretend to explain that in, in perfect detail. But still, it's a, it's a truth that experientially as Christians in the experience of our life of faith is beautiful, isn't it? The verse goes on in verse 8. Although he was a son, in other words, the son of God, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. I confess, my friends, I I struggled with this myself even as I studied this. We don't think of Jesus that way, do we? And yet the scripture teaches us that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he struggled with all these things and he gained the victory. Never at any point in these struggles, never at any point in these loud crying, never at any point in these tears, 
Never at any point as he learned obedience from his sufferings did he succumb to sin. The temptation was there. It was powerful. It was strong. But it never overwhelmed him. And for us, my friends, what that teaches us then is as Christians, when we are joined to Christ, then our sinful conception and birth is removed. And we can truly be said to have a sinless conception and a sinless birth. Because we are joined to the one who had a sinless conception and a sinless birth. And so, even as Christ gained the victory and never once succumbed to sin, neither do we. In the experience of our life, my friends, we sin all the time, don't we? And yet, as we are in Christ, all those sins are covered under his perfect innocence. That's also the message of Christmas, my friends. That where we fail, where we fail in our obedience of the law, Christ succeeded, and we can be in him. Now, my friends, is that not a glorious truth this evening to rejoice in? What a beautiful thing, my friends, that we, always failing, can take refuge in the one who was always tempted, just as you are, but never failed, never sinned, never gave in for one minute. What a glorious victory that is, my friends, that we can celebrate in this time of year. And the last point that I give you here is its visibility. How can we know? And the Apostle also gives us that tonight. How can we know that we are one of those who are covered by the perfect innocence of Jesus Christ? And Paul goes on in verses 4 and 5. He says, Those who walk, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is how that reality, my friends, manifests itself in the life of God's people. They begin to walk differently. They are controlled not by the spirit or not by the not by sin anymore, but they are controlled by the law. Not by sin, but by the law. And my friends, that makes itself visible in our life. That is something you can see. I never forget the old preacher Rowland Hill in England, who said, The dog, I've probably said this before to you, I love this expression. He said, The dog in your house and the cows in your barn will know that a change has come in your life. Because it manifests itself. You're a different wife. You're a different husband. A different child. And it makes itself known. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think, my friends, no, I don't think, I I know I can say what the Apostle says here in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. But notice how the Apostle Paul even qualifies that, right? He says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the key thing, my friends. The perfect innocence of Christ covers all our sin and it makes itself clear in the walk of our life, in the fruits of the Spirit being visible in our life. Well, my friends, I I submit this truth to you this evening. What a glorious time of year it is to celebrate this truth and what a glorious truth it is that the Catechism gives us that the perfect conception and birth of Christ is the perfect answer to our being born and conceived in sin. Let us rejoice in that truth this season 
and give, give God the praise. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Lord, our hearts are full when we consider this truth, Lord, that you entered into our existence. You became a human. That you took sin. And you entered into the likeness of sinful flesh. You became subject to all temptations. And yet never once did you sin. And so sin was condemned. Sin was defeated. And you were the victor. And what the law could not do because of our weak flesh, you succeeded in doing. Lord, we praise and glorify your name from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, I pray for everyone who is gathered with us this evening, that for those who do not know these things, Lord, that they would come and take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and find in him a perfect Savior who answers every one of our needs. Lord, bless us then and keep us. Glorify your grace in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take now the blue hymnal and sing to God's praise, number 329. Number 329. O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. Let's sing the let's sing the six verses of 329 in the blue hymnal.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.